We're going to be in the book of Acts. We're continuing in our study. Uh, we just started last week, so some of you were like, oh, man, we missed it. You just missed one week. It was a, it was a good one. Uh, it was an important one. Um, we ran up against some things uh, that maybe uh, we are unfamiliar with, dare I say even uncomfortable with, uh, specifically who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is within the church. We ran up against that last week. We're going to continue to run up against um, the Holy Spirit and his role, because really, here, if you heard anything from last week, I, if they asked me, I would not have called this letter from Luke Acts of the Apostles. I would have called it Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit that is moving through the church, right? Now, when we say church, and this is the big reason why we're walking through the book of Acts, let me break it down, because the church is completely misunderstood these days. But let me encourage you, the church has always been misunderstood. There's never been a time in history from the very beginning of what we call the church that it has, that it has, it has always been misunderstood. And we'll see that through the book of Acts. We see that with the, with the Jews. We'll see that with um, uh, the Samaritans. And we'll see that with the Gentiles. But here's the encouraging part is that the church, although it's been misunderstood, it has never been undefined. The church has always been defined because Jesus Christ is the one who has defined it. And even before there was any formation of the church, Jesus promised his church two things. One, I will build my church. And if you know the rest, the church rats in the house, if you know the rest, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ declared in that moment that you do not worry, I will build my church. You don't have to worry. That's not your job. Your job is not to build the church. Your job is to be the church. Amen? That's our job. It is Christ's responsibility to build this church, and then we can rest in the fact, and he tells us again in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, I will be with you always, even at the end of the age. Jesus says this, I will protect my church, and the fact of this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is what we can rest in. This is, not even what, this is who we can rest in, in Jesus Christ. He's not just our Savior. He didn't just die on a cross so we could say a prayer and then forgive us of our sins, and we can, you know, uh, eat really nasty bread and some, something similar to grape juice. I don't know. That's not why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. It's definitely not why he's only, those aren't the only reasons why he's coming back. He gave his church a mission to follow. He gave his church a mission to live out. So this, we're going we're gonna to walk through this. And so let me Define the church, because the church oftentimes is misunderstood. So let me define the church for us. The church is God's people. Those who declare, lift up, worship, surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the church. Just because you're in this room today doesn't mean you are the church. Just because you leave this room in a few minutes doesn't mean you are not the church. Some of you are like, well, I would prefer that. Some days I would prefer that too, honestly. And that's not the responsibility that we have been given by Jesus Christ. God's people is the church. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that we are also the vessels that God uses. The church is the vessel. There is no plan B. There is no other option. There's no backup plan. Okay, it's not like it's not like uh, there's a there's a whole nother wave. There's not like another uh, recruiting class coming in to help fix any. There's not like there's another draft uh, where we can solve all of our problems. That's not what's happening. The church are the vessels. We are the vessels as God's people. But for what? 
to live out, to execute, if you will, if you, if you kind of have uh, like a type A personality, okay? You got to execute. We're going to execute. We're going to carry out. We're going to complete the mission of God. And what is that? So here's the church. Here's the church. There's three layers. We are the people of God that are the vessels of God who live out to carry out the mission of God. This is the church, right? And so I know maybe your faith background, you know, I, 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 I was never told that I was the church. I went to church. I went to a building. I went to a, a gathering. I went to a place. I, I did things at church. I, I've never heard that I am the church. And where does that begin? It begins in the book of Acts where we see Jesus' words telling his disciples in chapter 1, verse 5, um, that you have been baptized, but then what is coming is that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is where I told the Pentecostals to calm down, relax, and then I told the Baptists to relax, all right? Whatever your faith background might be, when we hear the term baptism in the Holy Spirit, for some of you, it freaks you out. And here's what I said. If it freaks you out, then the words of Jesus have lost their authority in your life. Because those are the words of Jesus. And he didn't tell his disciples those words to freak them out. He told Jesus, he, Jesus told his disciples those words to bring them hope, to encourage them. And so if the baptism of the Holy Spirit, now listen, this, this is what I preached last week, guys. Calm, why are you getting me into the last week's sermon? <laughs> People have definitely taken it on the extreme on both sides, okay? Um, and if you're interested in that, just listen to last week's. We, can't, we ain't got time for that. Have you ever, have you ever uh, made a decision where you went all in on a decision and you jumped in? You really wasn't, you weren't sure on how it was going to play out. It could have gone two, it could go two different ways, but you just jumped in on your decision and you went all the way in and it, and it didn't quite work out for you. Anybody have a, have a, a testimony of that? Um, as a Cowboys fan, that's like every year for me. <laughs> I go all in. I'm like, this is our year. This is our year. Did you see it? And we look good most of the season until the playoffs. And then Dak throws three interceptions uh, and we get knocked out. Uh, that's like, that's put it on repeat. That's kind of what we'll do until Dak is no longer the quarterback of the Cowboys. But I'm not on ESPN. We're in a worship gathering and we're trying to study God's word. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to help you see that this, this is a real-life struggle for me. Uh, maybe you went all in on a business venture. Maybe you went all, all in on a relationship. Maybe you went all in on a, on a move for a job, you know, whatever that may have been, and you came out on the wrong end. Anybody, and that's, that's probably happened to all of us, right? Not all of those scenarios are laughing matters, and we can joke about it like being a sports fan, like, you know, Texan fans, you know. We can laugh about that, okay? Let's just be honest. Uh, but not every scenario that you're thinking about or that we are thinking about, uh, you know, would make us laugh. You know, some of us, like, still have hurt. We still have maybe even some bitterness. We still have some forgiveness that we need to pass uh, to somebody else because of those decisions. We're going to look in Acts chapter 2 um, about what happens in, in a scenario that happened just like this. But, but first, I want us to read Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12, it says this. The apostles returned from Jerusalem. Where were they returning from? The ascension of Jesus. Jesus came to earth. He lived. He uh, was betrayed. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was crucified. He died. He was buried in a tomb. 
He rose again three days later, and then for the next 40 days, Jesus' fully resurrected body, who is now alive, he spent time with his disciples for 40 days. In fact, at one point, we read that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Okay, So this is a, a legit thing that happens. Jesus is, is, is risen from the dead. Um, he appears to his disciples over the 40 days. Then he, uh, on the top of Mount, the Mount of Olives, he ascends into heaven. All right, and that's kind of where we left off last week. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, uh, which isn't very far at all. If you're, if you're on the Mount of Olives, you walk down to the Kidron Valley, and then you go up into Jerusalem. That's why a lot of the Psalms, when they talk about going up into Jerusalem, there's a geographical going up out of a valley into the city of Jerusalem. Um, they traveled a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs of the room where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. This is why we don't read about people's thoughts. This is a historical document detailing for us what happened and who was there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew. Uh, please, one of you name one of your children, at least their middle names, Bartholomew. Matthew, James, son of Alphys, Alphys. Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They met there together and were constantly united in prayer. Underline that. If you mark in your Bible, highlight that. If you have your phone. They were constantly united in prayer with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. All right, so Jesus ascends into heaven. They go back to their VRBO where they were in. They go upstairs, and they, and they pray. Jesus just gave them the Great Commission. He ascends into heaven, right? Those of you like, and, and you guys are like, yeah, so what? A full-grown man lifted up off of the ground and floated into the sky after he gave them the mission of the church that they are responsible for carrying out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he floats up into the sky. That's why as you read in Acts chapter 1, all of the disciples are on the ground staring up into the sky we don't know how long, but long enough to where two angels came down and they said, um, what are you doing? What, they literally, why are you still looking up into the sky is what they say. Go. Like you've been, given the, you've been given the words of Jesus. Go. This is what happened. And they go up into the upper room and what do they do? They plan. They strategize. They break up. They start delegating responsibility. What do they do? They pray. You know what that tells me? Is that the most primary, one of the primary characteristics of the church is prayer. I know you're like, oh, is there something like sexier than that, Cameron? You're like, how can you help me be a better person? Right? Pray. Yeah, but I mean, like, my marriage, is there, are there like three ways that I can be a better spouse? Or three ways? Pray. Pray. Yeah, but my finances, like, gosh, we, we, we spend 120% of what we make. Um, is there any way you can help me? Well, don't do that. Pray. Let me ask you this question. This has been, been rattling around in my brain, and I think it's gonna, what we're, we're going to continue to bump up against this question, but in multiple different contexts throughout the study of the book of Acts. Has what was primary for the early church become secondary for Westlake Church? 
What we see the disciples of Jesus Christ do immediately is they go up into a room. Understand this, guys. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He appeared to them for 40 days. He then gives them the great commission and then floats up into heaven. And they go back to the room that they were staying in. They go upstairs and then they pray. I, I, they missed the mark on a lot of things, guys. We, we walk through this, and we can relate oftentimes to disciples because we're like, yeah, no, they're, they're dumb, you know? Like, Cameron, you're right. I would make a great disciple. Um, some of you will get that at lunch. <laughs> but they got it right here. Can I ask you, like, when you feel overwhelmed, when you, when you feel like the season of life that you are in, has, has completely maxed out the capacity that you feel like you have to offer that season of life or that scenario or that relationship, how often is, is our first response prayer? I mean, how, how often is that? Has what was primary for the early church, has it become secondary for us? We see it here. It's what they do immediately. They go first and foremost. Our next prayer gathering is Wednesday night, May 3rd. We do these once a month. We meet right here in this room. There's nothing sacred about this room uh, except for it is a place where God's people assemble and we go to him in prayer. We don't have music. Uh, we have a microphone and a speaker and we, uh, we read some scripture that prompts us into prayer. This is what we do. It's very anticlimactic because we are focused on going to God in prayer. That's what we're focused on in our nights of prayer. So if that might interest you, maybe that's something that you want to grow in, or maybe you know, like, gosh, I, I, I don't feel like that is consistent enough in my life. Maybe you'll make a note Wednesday night, May 3rd, you'll join us right here at 6.30. We do food first, and then we come in and pray. So uh, 6.30, um, Wednesday night, uh, May 3rd, right? So this is what they do. They go and they pray, and they are united in their prayer. Prayer should drive our decisions. Prayer should drive our motives. Prayer should drive who we are, what we do, and what we don't do. Um, this is what we see as a clear, distinctive characteristic of the church. The church should be focused and united in prayer. All right, let's jump to chapter 2. All right, um, Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days um, from the resurrection. Now, we know about Pentecost because it's a Jewish festival. Pentecost existed before uh, Jesus was born, okay? Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. Uh, this year, it'll be on May 28th. Um, but on the, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly, probably in that same VRBO, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Who is the main character of what we just read in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit. Thank you. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one acting. The Holy Spirit is the one filling. The Holy Spirit is the one blessing and gifting. It is all a demonstration of who God is, his presence, and his plan through the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's not miss that. 
Oftentimes, maybe in your faith background, this has been a passage of Scripture that has been used to lift up and edify a gifting as opposed to the presence of God. And maybe your faith background says this, um, that, that if you can do this, it means that you are more special to God than people who can't do this, is what it means. Now let me ask you, does that line up with what we just read in the Scriptures? No. They're wrong. Like, you can't say that. Yes, I can. Because it's what the Bible says. If you have a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me. You've got a problem with Scripture. It's not my problem. It's the problem that doesn't line up with God's Word. These are known languages. If you go read in um, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, you read about the languages um, that these disciples were speaking in. There were more than 12. Okay, There were more than 12. These are spoken by known people. How do we know who spoke them? Because Luke just gave us a list of who was there in the room. right? We know these are known languages because we see the people that are being spoken to in verses 8 through 11. We know that the people speaking them are known people because Luke gave us a list of who was actually there. And we know that they are saying known statements... As they speak in these known languages. Okay? These are not, this is not just some uh, words that somebody is spouting out. These are languages and they are speaking them precisely. They are saying words that make sense to somebody else in their language and they are saying statements that make sense to that other person in that other language. Are we all on the same page? Okay, good. All right, verse 5. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, um, when they were in the upper room, when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own what? Trick question. It's right there. Um, their own languages being spoken by the believers. So we're not, we're not talking about something that nobody else understands. Scripture here is talking about these are Known men and women speaking known languages, saying known statements to these people in their native tongue. And they were completely amazed. Right? Let's jump uh, to verse 11. Uh, the Cretans and the, and the, and the Arabs, and uh, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages. And what are they hearing the disciples speaking about in their own language in verse 11? They're speaking about the wonderful things God has done. Who is lifted up by what they're doing? Who, who is being magnified by these disciples speaking in other languages? God. Now, let me ask you, if that is your faith background, who often is glorified and lifted up by speaking in an unknown language? The person who is speaking. Again, I'm not trying to pick a fight here. I'm just wanting to clarify some unhealthy theology that maybe we have in our church family according to what God's word says. This is what God's word says. So if you have a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God's word. You have a problem of, of reconciling what maybe I've been taught or maybe what I've experienced versus what God's word actually says. These are known languages spoken by known people Known statements, and the known statements that are being talked about, that are being spoken, are statements to glorify God. They're, they're, they're only spoken for one purpose, which is to bring glory to God. Okay, 
We're going to keep on bumping up against stuff like this all through the book of Acts. For some of you who are like, Cameron, this is amazing. <laughs> Others of you are like, when, like, when can we get to like the armor of God or something? I don't know. Like, let's pick it up, right? So verse 12, they stood there amazed, meaning the crowd, hearing these languages, these known languages being spoken by known people. Like, Cameron, we get it. Keep it saying that. Well, I'll keep saying it. Verse 12, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk. That's all. It's very common. I mean, it's very common for drunk people to become, like, trilingual, right? <laughs> very common. Very common. Uh, of course that was, oh, they're drunk. They're able to speak fluently in languages that they should not in any way, shape, or form know. This always happens. Gosh, how embarrassing. Let's go a little bit further down in chapter 2. Peter stands up. Right? Let me, this would be like the Duck Dynasty guy speaking like fluent Mandarin. Right? Okay, just to make sure we're on the same page. Just a little bit of an illustration there. Peter stands up. And what we're going to read about Peter doing is he stands up and he's going to preach. How many languages is Peter, is Peter going to preach in here? Take a guess. One. Aramaic. He's going to stand up and he's going to preach in one language and guess who is going to be able to understand him? Everybody. Isn't that cool? The only, let me tell you this, the purpose, the purpose of everyone hearing their own language was to draw them in. The nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The gospel is for you. This is why when, when, uh, when we talk about Acts 1-8 as a church, we say that we are not an or church, we are an and church. What does that mean, Cameron? Because Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But we don't get a choice. We don't get to pick and choose. Jesus has commanded us all. Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so these disciples now are, by God's power and plan and equipping, are now taking the gospel for the very first time. This is the first sermon that is ever preached in the church. And it's Peter. He stands up and he's going to preach. And he preaches a sermon. And look at what he says in verse 22. This is part of his sermon. Um, part of what he says is, People of Israel... Listen, right? if you were here um, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus would tell his disciples this often. Like, hey, hey, I want you to listen to me, right? Well, this is like one of my kids, when I'm talking to my kids, sometimes when you like drive up to other people's homes, and you turn around in the car and you're like, listen, look at my face, right? This is what I tell my boys. Look at my face. I know they're not paying attention, okay? This is what, th he learned this from Jesus, okay? Peter Peter uh, has always been the one told by Jesus to listen. Now he's telling everybody else to listen. I just think it's awesome. Nobody else cares. I think it's funny. People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death, and raised him back to life, for death couldn't keep him in its grips. Jump to verse 36. 
So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? This is the first sermon that is preached into the church. And what Peter does here is he tells the crowd, he tells um, the rest of his brothers and sisters, uh, uh, you know, Jewish brothers and sisters, he tells them that you were wrong. You jumped in to a decision and you went all in on that decision. Because it wasn't just a few weeks ago, you were yelling crucify him because you were terrified and scared of the unsettlement and the disruption that Jesus was causing inside of your community. You jumped in all in so much so that you were willing to yell crucify him and you were wrong. You came up on the wrong side of the decision. And what Peter is saying here is that you were wrong. And so here's what the Holy Spirit does. Through the preaching of Peter, through the equipping of his, uh, Jesus' disciples with the, the ability to speak in known languages, here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit convicts the crowd and convinces the crowd of the truth about who Jesus really is. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why when we say, hey, listen, we should live lives in a way um, that honor God, that honor Jesus, it's also the reason why we say we should speak the truth of the gospel to the, to the men and women or students or neighbors or friends that we have. We should not only live in a way that honors God, but we should also speak the truth of the gospel. But then it is not our responsibility for someone's heart to change. It is not our responsibility. It is not our responsibility for, for that, that transformation or the reception of the gospel. It is up to the person hearing, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit that convinces. The same is true for those who are unbelievers, and the same is true for those who are believers. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin, and the Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us and convinces us that we aren't just living our lives on a hopeless dream. We are living our lives built upon the foundation of truth. It is the Holy Spirit who reminds us of this and calls us to faithfulness. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Jesus even says this in John chapter 16, verse 8. He says, he, meaning the Holy Spirit, this is the context in which Jesus is teaching his disciples in John 16. He, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin, but he will also come and convict the world of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The Holy Spirit's work is the one of life change. It is our job to be the vessels Let's go back to who is the church. The church is God's people who are the vessels that carry out the mission of God. Now, we are not the one who convicts people of their sin. I know there are times where we want to just be the people who convict other people of their sin, right? And we do that anyway, amen? We just do it anyway. We're like, I don't care. These 10 seconds, Jesus, I'm not living for you, right? I'm living for myself. This is what the Holy Spirit does. So two things we see in verse 36. Let's go back and read verse 36. Two things real quick. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter leaves no um, debate about who he is referring to, to be both Lord 
and Messiah. Two things. One, what is the Holy Spirit convicting this crowd on? What is the Holy Spirit convincing this crowd about? The first thing that he is convicting them on is that the crowd was wrong about their confession of Jesus. So in verse 36, Peter says, let everyone in Israel know for certain. So I want to make it clear Now, whether or not you believe that is up to you, but I don't want there to be any debate on who I'm talking about and who the one I'm talking about, who he truly is. They were the crowd that just yelled out earlier, crucify him, because there were a lot of different perspectives on who Jesus was. Some thought he was a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Here's the role of a prophet, to call God's people back to him through the confession of sin. And they thought he was a prophet. Did Jesus do that? Yes, absolutely. But that wasn't the culmination of Jesus's work. That's not the culmination of the identity of Jesus. He's not just a prophet. He's not only a prophet. Yes, he is and and was calling people from their sin to repentance, from their sin into closer uh, intimacy with the Lord, but that was not all that he did. Some thought he was going to be a political savior. This is what many Jews believed about the Messiah. The Messiah would come, and they would uh, dethrone uh, the Roman government. Um, At this time is what they believed. We're going to dethrone the Roman government and then place us back on top of our own country and maybe even the world's power. This is what the the Messiah is going to do. One day, one day the Messiah will do that. But that's not what Jesus came on earth to build. He came on earth to build the kingdom of God which in many ways is upside down from the kingdom that we both desire and expect. And so Jesus came and he built the kingdom of God. He asked that God would uh, make it on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what he told his disciples to also pray, which is what we should pray. They, people expected a prophet. They expected a political savior. And a lot of people thought he was just phony. That he was fake. He was making it up. In fact, he was accused by the religious leaders of having demonic power. There's no way he's the son of God. There's definitely no way he's the Messiah. He's not even a prophet. This dude's a fake. These these are just some of the categories that people believed about Jesus. And so what is Peter doing? Peter is wanting to make it crystal clear for the crowd that Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has been made and given all authority in heaven on earth, not because I'm saying it, not even because you believe it, but because God has given it to him. And that's who you have crucified. And you came up on the wrong side of your confession. Verse 36, he also says that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Now, why is that significant? We read that and we're like, yeah, I know. In fact, I got a bumper sticker. I got three shirts, Cameron, that say that. This isn't new. You know, like, come on, you got got anything else? At the time, one of the main reasons why Jesus would find himself in controversy with the religious leaders, one of the main reasons is because he would claim to be God. He would say, I am God. He would say that he is the one who sent me, and uh, me. Uh, if you see me, you see the Father. Um, when he would respond to uh, one, one, one time when he was being, uh, after he was arrested, uh, before he was crucified, he was taken by the re- religious leaders, and they were asking him questions, and, and uh, do you claim to be God? They asked him, do you claim to be God? And he says, I am, which is the name that God used uh, to declare himself to Moses and to his, the Israelites in their captivity in Israel, I mean in Egypt. One of the biggest factors of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and murder was his claim to be God. Peter here is saying, not just Lord as, as we would read it, that as God, 
and not just a God, and not just one of the gods, he is God, the God of heaven. Jesus, whom you crucified, is God, one, and Messiah. So not only is he the God, he is also our Savior. He is not just a Savior. He's not just one way to God. He is both Lord and Messiah. There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. This is the first sermon that is preached in the church, and the apostle Peter is preaching the gospel that says this, Jesus Christ is God, and there is no other way to God except through him. Let me say it this way. There are a million ways to Jesus. There is only one way to God. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through many. No, what does he say? Except through me. This is what Peter is declaring to the crowd. They got it wrong, guys. They got it wrong. They went all in, and they missed. So Peter is saying, listen, the, the Jesus whom you crucified is both God and Savior. He is the God, and he is the only way. C.S. Lewis had this great illustration that he wrote about that you can believe three things about Jesus, and that's it. You either believe that Jesus is a liar, that he just made it up, he's not who he says that he is, and in some way, shape, or form, uh, just fooled everybody to believe in these miracles uh, and, and pulled off like a great, a great uh, hoax. He's a lunatic, which we've, we have many of those today. <laughs> Amen. Uh, we have very charismatic people, and um, many people might believe these charismatic people. But they're lunatics. So you, you might believe that Jesus is a lunatic. But you believe that Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. That's it. There, there are no other beliefs about Jesus. Let me tell you, let me tell you where, where oftentimes, if you're like me, where you might find yourself. Jesus, I believe that you're Lord, but for the most part, I got it. Jesus, I believe that you are God, but I'm going to pretty much run my life the way I want to run it. Jesus, I, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the only way to God, and I thank you so much for that, because when I die, I'm going to appreciate that a lot. But for right now, but for right now, I'm, a, I'm, doing, I'm doing my deal. I got this. Maybe, like you, that's where I find myself often times. What was the Holy Spirit convicting this crowd of? One, that they were that they were wrong when it came to their confession of Jesus. And so let me ask you, are you wrong about your confession of Jesus? Is Jesus both Lord and Messiah? Is he both God, Master, or is he just a piece of your life that you think will help you have a better life? Are you surrendered fully and completely to God, or are you like, you can have a couple hours of my week? Is Jesus Christ Lord and Messiah? Well, I mean, I know Jesus is the way, but, I, you know, 
I don't really know what that means. I'm afraid. I'm afraid if I commit to Jesus, I'm going to have to go be some missionary in some remote tribe of cannibals. You know, like, I just don't know. I don't know. I'm afraid. That's, that was my fear growing up in the church. <laughs> That's why I brought it up. You're like, wow, that was really specific, Cameron. Yeah, that was my fear. Um, and then he sent me to Houston. And uh, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> just kidding. We love it. We love it. This is home. And so what do we, what, what do, we do with that? Like, how do we resolve that? Is Jesus Lord and Messiah? This crowd, 3,000, 3,000 of the crowd. If you read on through the book, uh, chapter 2, 3,000 believe and are baptized. And the church begins. Well, the church continues, I guess. We see the proclamation of the gospel. We see the equipping and the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the convicting and the convincing of the Holy Spirit. And we see the faithfulness of the men and women who followed Jesus were probably scared out of their minds, had no idea what the Great Commission meant or what it would look like, but they went and they sought God and they were united in prayer. And when the Holy Spirit came, when God called them, God also equipped them. And when God equipped them, guess what the Holy Spirit did? He moved. 3,000 men and women and children believed that day and were baptized. Guys, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at this room. I'm looking at this room. I, I'm telling you, we are better than those original disciples. Mostly because I'm in this room, okay? <laughs> like, catch on to this. He is the same Holy Spirit. Maybe you just need to tell yourself. Maybe you just need to stop right here and tell yourself. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that lives in me. The same Holy Spirit that empowered and equipped and, and, and made these disciples bold to share their faith in Christ and to live faithful and to go to him in prayer and be united in prayer is the same Holy Spirit that lives in me. He is the same God at work. From Genesis to one day the end of what we call Revelation. It's the same God. And we will declare this doctrinally. We will declare this theologically. But when it comes out to living this out practically and socially, we're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I don't know. I'm kind of scared by it. Kind of freaks me out. We have got to get over that as God's people. We are the vessels. There is nobody else. The church are the vessels. And we are the vessels to carry out and accomplish the mission of God. Guess what that mission of God is? It's not a big, long list. You know what the mission of God is? Make disciples. Make disciples. That's it. It's very easy. Sorry, it's very simple. It doesn't mean it's easy. If you're quoting me, just make sure you make that edit. It's simple. It's a simple strategy. These are simple teachings. These are very easy handlebars to grab onto. The difficulty, though, is that it's very hard to live out, which is one of the beauties of what we're doing here. The Holy Spirit, maybe he is convicting you of where Jesus is not Lord and Messiah. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convincing you that you have been living your life in a way that is apart from him, and calling you into intimacy in a relationship with him. Calling you to faith. Calling you to boldness. 
calling you with the same power that rose Christ from the dead to equip you to walk faithfully in the mission that he has given you. Guys, it is now. The time is now. Not tomorrow. Not when I get a little bit, you know, my schedule slows down. When has that ever happened? When has your schedule ever slowed down a little bit? Never in the history of calendaring has anyone's personal schedule ever slowed down a little bit. Oh, when I just get, when I just get to this, that's the enemy at work lying to you, and you're believing it. The Holy Spirit does not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of what, church rats? Come on, we know God's word. Power, love, and self-discipline, a sound mind. You know what it takes to live faithfully in a dark and corrupted and evil and desperate world? You know what it takes to live faithfully as a people of God? Power, power to stand strong, love to see past the mess and love the people in a sound mind, self-control, self-control. How do we live faithfully as God's people? By asking God to baptize us in the Holy Spirit so that we may be equipped with boldness, that we may be equipped with patience, that we may be equipped with love and self-control so that we can accomplish the mission that he has given us to go and make disciples. That's what he's called us to. That's the mission of the church. So I want to ask you this morning, are you doing that? Is Jesus Lord and Messiah? Is Jesus Lord and Messiah? I want you just to bow your heads real quick. I don't want us to leave here this morning without the opportunity to respond to both of those questions. Is Jesus Lord? Here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking this. Do you come to church? Do you listen to KSBJ? Do you have the Lord's Prayer memorized? I'm not asking that. What I'm asking is, is your life surrendered to the one and only true God? Is Jesus Christ Lord? And if not, the reason why you might feel like it is not is because the Holy Spirit is convicting you of where that is not true in your life. Not because he hates you or because he's evil. No, because he loves you. And like a loving father, his kindness brings us to repentance. Because God knows what is best for us. And he is not going to let us wander off because we think we know best without reminding us of what is right. And so like a loving father or a loving mother would correct their children, our God says this, you are wandering away from me. I love you too much to let you do that. What is your response to him today? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is he God? Is Jesus Christ Messiah? Jesus Christ, your Savior. What forms your identity is another way I would ask that. What forms your identity? What, what shapes your identity? Who shapes your identity? Is it your job? Is it your achievements? Is it your children's successes? 
Is it your salary, your title, your possessions? What is it that shapes your identity? Where are you trying to find the fulfillment of your life? Jesus Christ calls us to him. And he calls us to him because he says, I, I am the good shepherd. I don't just hear my sheep. I lead my sheep. And I lead my sheep to green pastures and still waters where they can eat and be fulfilled and rest. I know what's best for them, and so I lead them. Are you looking to your job or your salary or your marriage to lead you, to be your shepherd? Jesus Christ, your Messiah, have you surrendered your life to him? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Those two things in Romans 10, 9, the apostle Paul says, the confession of your mouth and the belief in your heart, you will be saved. And today, maybe that day is for you. Will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the sustaining power of your word. Thank you for the sustaining, equipping, and power of your Holy Spirit. And just like I prayed last week, I pray that every single one of us would seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not so that we can be weirdos and walk around and, and, and try to lift up our name or act like we're doing something special. But God, I pray that we would be a church that is full of your Holy Spirit so that we may go faithfully proclaim the gospel that we would live out the only mission that you have given your church, which is to make disciples. Help us love others, serve others, and speak to others the way that Jesus did, all for the glory of your name, for the, for the building of your kingdom, God, which is who we serve. We serve you, not the other way around. Remind us of that in this moment, God. We forgive us, forgive us when we, when we switch that, God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.